0: In late 19th century Japan, samurai were considered an anachronistic embarrassment, unproductive and useless. Western dress spread rapidly throughout society. Castles were demolished by local governments. Yet today, in the 21st century, samurai seem to be a nearly ubiquitous symbol of Japan. However, many of those th- the things that comprise that symbol, the sport of kendo, swords sharper than razors, the coat of bushido, are often impositions upon the historical past. As is often the case, it's not what we don't know about history that's the problem, it's what we know that just isn't so. With me to discuss Samurai and their historical development is Michael Wirt, Associate Professor of History at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He is the author of Meiji Restoration Losers, Memory and Tokugawa Supporters in Modern Japan, and most recently, Samurai, a Concise History, published by Oxford University Press this month, next month. When's it coming out,
1: Michael? Uh, I think the official date is July. Oh, really? Well, so. But it could come out earlier. This uh, is a a little taste to draw
0: people in. This is, (laughs) for for once, we're having, for once, I'm having conversations with people before the book is out. That's yes. that's a nice change. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is, I think, the first uh, conversation I've had with with a Japanese historian. Um, oh, great! Yeah. So well, I, I hope it goes well. I hope I don't <laughs> disappoint and I mean, ruin. Yeah, we'll history never. History. We might never oh, yeah. have one on again. Um, <laughs> so we should ask. I should ask things to satisfy my curiosity. Um, sure. Is it you? You refer to early modern Japan, and you refer to medieval Japan. Uh, are are these categorical impositions from European history or is there how how is Japanese history typically divided um, by scholars like yourself
1: yeah I would say you know probably since the 1960s or 1970s people started using early modern Japan medieval uh, and classical Japan and they're roughly equivalent to what you would find in European history and nowadays um, even people who do Korean or Chinese history or comparative East Asian history will say early modern East Asia or medieval Korea or something like that. Mm -hmm. And every, you know, every couple decades or so since then, there's been a conversation of, well, what are the problems with these? Should we be doing this or not? And now there's general consensus that yes, you know, any kind of um, terminology is going to be problematic, but these are convenient, especially since world history has been big since the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's pretty much accepted use. Yeah. So
0: what, uh, what, what roughly are the dates for say classical Japan? Uh, I say this oh, because yeah. with the, um, with the recent, um, abdication, uh, and accession yes. of the new emperor. Uh, yes. It's we're, we've been reminded that the Japanese monarchy is incredibly long-lasting. Oh yes. Uh, yes. Uh, changing in importance greatly uh, during that time, but still it mm-hmm. goes back a long way. Right. Um, d- does that that would be typically, I suppose, uh, as in, oh, Byzantine history, for example, um, mm-hmm. you would the, their sense of time was based upon I, the dynasty, wasn't it?
1: Um, um, yeah, I guess. Um, in the case of Japanese history, yes. I mean, if I were to go backwards from you know the period I know best, what I was trained in—early modern Japanese history—I mm-hmm. would say any more people would say late sixteenth century to the early or mid nineteenth century would be considered early modern. Okay. Medieval might go back tenth, eleventh century to uh, you know fifteenth, uh, early sixteenth century. Mm-hmm. And classical, you know, to be honest, I would say probably anything before the 10th century would be considered classical. Hmm. Um, but to be honest, there are not a lot of historians in the West who do classical Japan. Really? Um, Why not? Yeah. No, I just think, well, I, you know, if I were to take a guess, I would say it's a combination of linguistic Demands. Mm -hmm. You know, not only do you have to know modern Japanese, but you'd have to know classical Japanese, classical Chinese. Yeah, I think also there's also just a, a, you know, an employment issue. There's Mm -hmm. not a lot of demand for classical Japanese scholars in the United States. Uh, and that's true of of Japanese history in general, I think right now. there are fewer and fewer positions for Japanese history. and there are also fewer places, therefore, fewer places to train in in classical Japan. Mm-hmm. So I would say in the United States, you know maybe there's a handful of people who would identify themselves as doing you know pre-medieval Japan, even medieval Japan huh. anymore, there are not, you know, a lot of people doing medieval Japan, although, um, I, Thomas Conlin at, uh, I think he's at, uh, Princeton or, or yes, he's at Princeton. He's been trying to raise a new generation of PhD students doing, um, medieval Japan. Um, and I, and I hope they get jobs. Hmm. Um, yes. Well, I, I hope that, um, well, I hope departments are, are curious. Other people
0: are curious enough to want to have someone who knows something about medieval Japan. Right. Um, what uh, so what makes medieval Japan and what makes early modern Japan? How would we? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And this is a terrible question to ask. I'm, for that matter, a medievalist, a, a European medievalist, this is actually rather difficult in some ways. Right. But at least there you can say, well, it's the end of the Roman Empire. Um, it's the end of a unitary uh, authority, et cetera. Well, what what would it be in what would it be in Japan?
1: Well, I would say probably, you know, the warring states period. Uh, so we're talking here, you know, the, the century of war from the mid to late 15th century for about 100 years outwards. Um, and the foundation, the kind of the, the falling apart of the centrality of power in Kyoto, mm-hmm. where not only the warrior regime existed, but also the emperor and the nobility, kind of breaking that power a little bit and also breaking the institutional power of uh, religions. Mm-hmm. Um, Buddhism as a ruling institution basically didn't exist as such once we get into the Tokugawa period, which would be you know 1600 or so. Okay. And so that, I think that's, you know, if we, clear we break. look at insti- yeah, institutional history, one would say that would be a big break, mm-hmm. yes. So let's, let's get to, let's move to samurai. Uh, what does samurai actually mean? You begin the book discussing this right well as i think a lot of people would know um uh, even from popular cultures samurai literally means one who serves and the very original usage it, it could actually refer to someone who was not a warrior right anyone who serves could mm-hmm. be a, us one who serves right um and so if we get into the ninth and tenth century um Samurai are serving basically the court and nobility and the emperor based in Kyoto, right? The nobility, they're the ones in power, and when they need something done, they'll call upon warriors. But for elite warriors, they would not be considered samurai as such. I mean samurai has kind of a a lowly connotation to it, right? So if you were an elite a warrior, if you were someone born in Kyoto into a noble family, but you happen to be someone who works full time as a warrior, you wouldn't be considered, you know, one who, who serves, right? That, you know, right. you'd get punched in the face. Uh, as one scholar said, you'd get punched in the face if you went up to an elite warrior of those days and said you were a samurai, right? So, kind of, so instead what people use in Japanese history is the term bushi, which is just kind of a new, somewhat neutral term meaning warrior. Mm-hmm. You you point out
0: that often um and this is this is interesting. I suspect this is a late 20th century thing. Warrior has a moral value. Um right. but that is not the case in medieval Japan, that you say that warriors are uh medieval Japanese often despise warriors. Uh why?
1: Well, I mean, you know, warriors if they would if they were sent out on some kind of campaign and usually you know, before the Warring States period, much of the warfare is really punitive in nature. You know, there's some kind of rebel or some kind of revolt, and the court is sending out warriors to take out that rebel or put down that rebellion or something like that. And, of course, this is the pre-modern world, right? So there is no nationalized army. There's no national tax or anything like that. So a lot of times what would happen is warriors would pillage on the route to you know putting down a rebellion or something like that so they were kind of despised by commoners um, by the clergy especially the buddhist clergy they were seen as you know compromised because they were killing people right and killing is one Mm -hmm. of the big no-nos in buddhism Um, from the kind of shinto point of view for lack of a better term you know blood has a very kind of a very polluting nature to it. So they were often depicted as beasts by writers and sometimes in artwork yeah. mm-hmm. So you uh, argue that there is no
0: warrior identity, should we say warrior even a warrior history prior to the is it the Gun pie war uh, in 11, 1185? Right, right. The yes, the uh, the genpei, genpei, the genpei, genpei war, eleven eighty, eleven eighty five. And what do you? Right. So you mean warrior history begins then? Uh, what what does that what does that mean? Right, right. Well,
1: it depends who you ask. Like sure. this used to be a big debate back in the nineties. It's a debate that really has no solution. Right. It's never been resolved. But this is the issue, right? When do you start the history of the samurai? Where are the origins? Mm-hmm. And one argument is that as soon as you have any kind of you know military man in Japanese history that that's the origins of the warrior right so that yeah. would be pushing it back to prehistory even you know uh, into mythology fifth century, sixth century something like that um, and then there's this other notion well you know really when we get to the noble families who are ordered to essentially act as military specialists people who are serving the court right so maybe ninth century 10th century something like that that's when you really have Warriors who do not see themselves as a social class across Japan, but do identify as warriors within their own small groups. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there would be another argument that says, well, you know, really we should push this even later to when warriors all around Japan recognize that they share certain interests um, that would put them fundamentally against the nobility or, or emperors or something like that, right? So mm-hmm. you know, a much broader, that would be kind of the historical sociology view of, of warrior history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of would agree with the view that really, you know, 10th century or so is when we have, you know, warrior nobilities who are, they're not just conscript warriors, right? They're not just people with swords and bows and arrows, but they do have some kind of uh, social existence; they exist as a social group, ninth, um, tenth century, or somewhere around there. So let's talk about the
0: uh, the Genpei War. Um, what was it? Mm-hmm. It's five years long, um, so not a long war uh, by world historical standards, uh, right. or Japanese standards for that
1: matter. Um, right. What was its importance? Right. So the Genpei War, you know, the, the to, to kind of simplify, was an issue about succession in Kyoto with emperors and kind of noble warrior families who are on either side of that succession. And the succession dispute had been going on even before the 1180s. But in 1180, the kind of The winner of previous succession disputes, the warrior who had supported the winning emperor, if you will, a guy named Taira Kiyomori, he had entered Kyoto and started accruing various titles um, uh, and putting his favorites into various positions in the bureaucracy in Kyoto. Mm -hmm. And it was getting to be a bit too much. There was a call for people, anyone really, to come take out Taira Kiyomori. And the guy who succeeded in, in answering that call it was Minamoto uh, Yoritomo, although he had his own rivals and such, even with his, within his own kinship group that he had to battle before sealing the deal, as it were. And so from 1180 to 1185, uh, Minamoto Yoritomo is fighting rivals, but he's also fighting the Taira family under Taira Kiyomori and their supporters. And that battle finally ends in 1185. Um, it's probably the first uh, large-scale war in Japanese history that we know anything about, really. Um, but so, even oh. so, it would be kind of small uh, compared to later warfare. Mm-hmm. So the result of this is
0: uh, Minamoto, um, is uh, Yoritomo, Yoritomo, becomes,
1: mm-hmm. um, is, does he become the first shogun? No, he's not the very first shogun. I mean, shogun is simply a a shortened term for Sei itai shogun, which literally means the barbarian subduing subduing generalissimo. Uh And shogun was never really thought of as a very major title. It was not a permanent title. It wasn't a title that you could pass on to anyone. So there had been shoguns uh, before him. Um, But after his death, the the Shogun becomes imbibed with all of this importance Mm -hmm. for warriors. Uh, So he becomes becomes Shogun, but he's also given all these other kind of court titles, which he deems as being much more important. And in fact, other noble warriors would have also seen these other titles as as much more important. Mm -hmm. But he is the first guy who kind of creates a small government, if you will, at his palace in Kamakura. Um, others before him had tried that, but he's the one who's probably the most uh, successful, um, and that becomes the Kamakura Shogunate. So th- let, me get, let me get this straight.
0: Uh, he's mm-hmm. creating a alternative government to imperial government. Is there an imperial
1: government? Um, uh, there is an imperial government, but he's not creating an alternative. It's like essentially having two governments mm, in, okay. in one country, which is never a good idea. It's like having two managers or two mm-hmm. bosses or something like this. Yeah. But essentially, um, his kind of fledgling bureaucracy is seen as the center of power for warriors, mostly on the east side of Japan. So even other warriors in Japan who are living way down in the southwest might not really follow anything that Yoritomo says or the people who come after him. Uh, in the Kamakura Shogunate. So it's really limited in its geographical scope and it's also limited in what it can and can't do. And certainly the court and nobility, the emperor in Kyoto, their government is is much more powerful. They're the kind of the the older brother if you will or the the senior partner in this uh, setup. So what what does he do with this government? What's the purpose of it? Is it is it
0: military? I mean is it is he is he doing things related to warrior the war I mean what's 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 its aim
1: right so its purpose is really to is several one is it kind of adjudicates any disputes um, that warriors might have or that nobility might have against warriors regarding things like uh, land disputes. Um, let's say you have a minor, maybe a mid-level warrior who's enroaching on the rights of, of land that some Buddhist temple owns. And what the Buddhist temple can do is they can sue that warrior, essentially, and that'll go through the judicial courts at Kamakura, right? And, or if there's uh, some kind of inheritance dispute within a warrior family. If they are a vassal of the Kamakura shogunate, they can go to the courts at Kamakura and say, hey, you know, someone is trying to, you know, uh, take money out of my inheritance or something like that. So they serve a kind of bureaucratic function for warriors. But what's counterintuitive, and this is what I often tell students, is rather than always side with warriors or try to spread warrior influence all around Japan, really the Kamakura shogunate kind of reigns in Hmm. warriors uh, on behalf of the court and nobility in Kyoto. And what's your so he so what's your explanation for
0: why that's why he does that?
1: Well, I mean, he dies early on in this whole conversation. I mean, he creates his Kamakura shogunate at his palace, Uh and then he dies. And it's really the warriors uh, after him who are trying to figure out exactly what the Kamakura shogunate is going to do, what is its relationship going to be with the court and the nobility in Kyoto? And I think in the early years, so let's say the early 13th century, the people who inherit the legacy, the people who run the Kamakura Shogunate they themselves are worried about um, how to interact with nobles in Kyoto and they're also worried about rivals from within uh, so they've got you know bigger things to worry about than then try to spread warrior rule throughout Japan as it were mm-hmm. um, they're just trying to solidify their grip on this small bureaucracy based in Kamakura and then probably in the mid or, late 13th century, they're finally able to do that, right? There's the Hojo family is the family that's kind of in charge. And there we see them start to enroach on warrior privileges in other parts of Japan where, um, the early Kamakura shogunate really didn't have any influence.
0: Mm-hmm. What, uh, you, you write the fullness of early warrior history is best captured through its women. Um, what do you mean by that?
1: How? Right. Well, so when we think, you know, if you were to imagine uh, a samurai in your head, right, usually you, d- you envision this guy uh, in armor with a sword or maybe a guy on horseback shooting bow and arrows. And so you always we always think of warriors as just that people who are at war all the time. But in fact, most of the time, warriors are not at war. Right? They're doing other things. They have other considerations. They have to manage these huge land portfolios. They have people under them, commoners, other warriors, mercenaries, uh, merchants, a whole almost like small companies, if you will. And if we just focus on the men, we tend to focus on individuals doing combat. But if we focus on women for a moment, right? if we shift the lens a little bit, we get to see more of that, what's really going on behind the scenes, because women are, you know, at the forefront of running the family, as it were, right? Uh, so making connections between the warrior family and noble women in Kyoto and making connections, political connections with other warrior families. Sometimes women uh, will actually fulfill the military obligations on behalf of their husbands who might be away at war or who might have died, right? Women are always outliving their husbands. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they play a pretty critical role in in managing this portfolio of people, rights to land, rights to produce, uh, politicking and all of this kind of thing. And so if we if we stop focusing on the men and the armor and the swords and the bows and arrows, then we actually see that there's a lot much going on a lot much more going on with with warrior history, and so that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to do that.
0: what um, can you give some examples of how um, women alter warrior culture or enforce it or reinforce it?
1: right okay so if we if we think about Someone like Minamoto Yoritomo, right? Mm-hmm. He was a guy who was raised in Kyoto. He was raised as a member of the nobility, right? Not necessarily as a military guy, but as a member of the nobility, mm-hmm. uh, a low-ranking noble uh, person, but noble person nonetheless. And when young warriors were raised as boys, uh, elite noble warriors, this is—they were raised by women. And those women were other minor noble family women. And those women would often bring – they would act as nannies or wet nurses. And they would often bring their sons as playmates with the boy that they're taking care of, right? (laughs) Um, And so as the mother of someone like Minamoto Yoritomo, you wanted to ensure that the right kind of noble families were sending their women to be nannies – Um, And what would happen is those playmates when they grew up would often be allies or Mm -hmm. potentially rivals to that boy. And those women would often interact with each other and work behind the scenes in the politicking of those families and their alliances and rivalries and and such. And that really happens a lot with uh, the Minamoto clan and also the Hojo clan, which is the clan that really does take over the Kamakura shogunate after uh yoritomo dies so let me try to get a, a few things
0: straight and uh, let's we're at, mm-hmm. uh, let's say about in about 1200 uh yoritomo would he consider himself a warrior uh before he um, died or <clears throat> or just a noble would he punch you in the face uh if you called him a samurai um, if you called
1: him a samurai yes if you called him a warrior no no he would okay. not um uh, but he also thought of himself as a, as a noble person. And the interesting thing is when we talk about Japanese history, people often think, okay, either you're noble or a warrior, mm-hmm. but at this early date, you're, some people are actually both. Sure, and and Yoritomo is, is an example of that.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm finding it inescapable to like start making uh, comparisons to medieval Europe, um, mm-hmm. in, in ways in which there are people that look like knights, but are not knights because they're not knighted. Uh, so they're men at arms. Mm-hmm. Right, Uh, and they serve a knight uh, who is then the sort of junior noble. But a knight himself is always serving a lord, uh, and that we have do we have these sort of cascading uh,
1: allegiances in in medieval Japan? Um, Yeah, I mean it's interesting. For example, you mentioned medieval Europe. You know, there's this issue of what's what's the difference between a vassal and a retainer, right? You know, and sometimes people use those terms interchangeably. Uh, even though they're very different, right? And the interesting thing with uh, warrior history in Japan is the further back you go, the more ambiguous things become. Sure, yeah. It's not really clear who is a warrior. Some commoners could be part-time warriors or mercenaries, um, but they might not be recognized officially in some sense as warriors as such. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, or they might be recognized as the retainer of a vassal who's connected to the Minamoto clan or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those people would be considered samurai in some sense, right? Yeah, uh, and it becomes in, in a sense it becomes Interestingly or usefully ambiguous right yeah. about who's warrior and who is not so uh, if, in 1200 um, If I'm a noble, I still wouldn't call myself samurai cuz
0: I don't serve anyone I'm, uh, I'm a noble um,
1: you you would be considered a samurai, sure,
0: right? You would. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Um and the um can I be a poor samurai?
1: Uh oh absolutely. You can, okay. Yes. Um and that that will also change over time. And probably in the early modern period there are lots of poor samurai. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but early on, certainly one could be a, a warrior, a low-ranking warrior who really makes their living doing other things, cultivating land uh, or managing cultivators on behalf of a landowner who is a proper noble person in Kyoto or a Buddhist temple or something like that. You could be engaging in trade um, or all kinds of other occupations, and that's the kind of side of warrior history that people – don't know about or kind of ignore right mm-hmm. they, because mm-hmm. they're focused on the kurosawa version of warrior history right, right. And people in armor with swords and such yeah yeah um
0: the mongol invasions uh, 1274 and 1281 um, um are those important to this story or are they just um episodes within the story
1: yeah, that's a good question. It depends who you ask, um, and it depends for which warriors. Yeah. But I would say that for th- in terms of spreading the influence of the Kamakura shogunate beyond eastern Japan, I would say it is important because you know the Kamakura shogunate was expected to deal with the Mongol problem and to prepare for a possible third invasion. And that meant doing a lot of organization, you know, having warriors work on the same page. And that meant opening up or increasing the size of their offices in the middle of Japan and also down in southern Japan, where previously they didn't have as much salience. And so I think in that sense, um, it is important. It also exacerbated economic problems that warriors were having. Um, limit, you know, ever decreasing access to land or the produce from land. Um, and during the Mongol invasions, of course, people want to get paid, right? Warriors are not doing this because it's cool or because someone's going to watch them in an anime in the 20th century, right? Mm -hmm. They're doing this to advance their careers, to advance their position and to get paid. And so people are, are expecting to get paid at the end of the Mongol invasions, and there's just not a lot to go around. So it does exacerbate problems that already exist before the Mongol invasions. And so in that sense, it's, it's important, um, but it's not uh, – you know, it just kind of intensifies things that, that had already been going on rather than being a, this huge watershed moment in yeah. and of itself. I was intrigued to see that um, there had been a sort of equal
0: inheritance of, of land, which has, right. has a great deal of problems in terms of, mm-hmm. uh, of getting paid or someone eventually getting paid. Uh, right. And uh, you, uh, what, I, what I was reading uh, was that, that the Mongol invasions do lead to a primogeniture of, right. of some
1: kind, which is a major change, yes. a major social change. Yes, it is. I mean, it really decreases the economic uh, independence of warrior women, especially mm-hmm. elite warrior women. Um, they they cannot inherit uh, as they used to before the Mongol invasions. And of course, all these changes are, are gradual and they happen a little bit before the Mongol invasions and, you know, intensify after the Mongol invasions. But yeah, I mean, it makes things more difficult for elite warrior women, I think. Um, And the second and third and fourth and fifth son, too. Um, Yes, and all those guys. Right. And so one can imagine being one of those sons and saying, you know what, Um, if I stick around, I'm just kind of a servant to my older brother, my oldest brother, who's going to be the next you know, head of this family. And so there is a kind of a push factor and maybe I'm just going to start my own family. I'm going to branch off. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to be a branch of this clan. I'm just going to do something completely different. And there's a little bit of that that happens even during the Mongol invasions. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a chance to kind of become independent. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it does intensify uh, instability within uh, warrior life, I would say. Yeah. (laughs) Um, let's talk about some
0: of the sort of the, some of the deep, um, these are really mythologies uh, about samurai. Um, mm-hmm. for example, uh, the sword, at least in the, medi- yes. in the medieval period, the the, right. the, the, sword that we know is a much later development. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems, uh, well, it yes. Is. And, um, what are swords like and how important are they in say 1200
1: 12 to 1300? Right. I mean, uh, Swords are a little bit larger than we would think of. Uh, And when we think of samurai swords today, they're a little bit larger than you would find in museums. And sometimes in museums, you can see these older swords. Um, Sometimes they can be a little bit more curved than we would expect out of uh, a samurai sword that you see in popular culture. And they're not – I mean – the one thing about swords is we always – people always think of them as almost like lightsabers, right? Yeah, right. They yeah. just touch you and and you're going to get – hurt. But a a lot of time, most swords are not that super sharp and they can be just used for you know blunt force trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you have a really long sword like that, yeah, maybe you could cut the legs off of a horse or something like that, but really it's good for bashing someone and crushing their skull. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not really used for this kind of fine artistic sword play, you know, cutting arteries and that kind of thing. All of that comes uh, you know, is a much later, uh, development, but they're essentially a sidearm, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is true even, you know, say in the 15th or 16th century, they're a sidearm right. and you don't go into war, you know, shooting a pistol, right? right. And so it, it, it's that kind of thing. So right? what's the, what's the primary arm? The primary weapon is the bone arrow, okay. bone arrow. Yep.
0: And that's what um, they spend their time training with, and 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 mastering uh,
1: even more time than the sword. Absolutely, oh. absolutely. In fact, we have no, there is no evidence at all that swordsmanship was a discipline to be studied or mastered um, or, or anything like that. None of that really happens until at the earliest the late sixteenth century. But really. I mean, the uh, uh, late 17th century, uh, uh, late 16th century and mm-hmm. really into the 17th century. But in the 1200s, no, I mean, there's, you know, training is, uh, you know, with mostly with the bow and arrow. Yeah. I, you
0: say that the, the phrase way of the horse and bow refers to military arts in general, which is right, significant. Right. Um, yes. the, I was also, uh, I don't know if charmed is the word, but intrigued to see that, uh, Dog shooting was one of their training customs. That's, yes uh, with, <laughs> but with with uh, with blunt arrows, they would hit, yes, hit the little creatures and they would <laughs> I guess I guess that's a way you're riding on your horse. you got the dog running around. that's a pretty good training uh, method,
1: right. And they would release a bunch of dogs at once. yeah, you know usually what would happen. But yes, you know, that kind of dog shooting or hunting. Uh, In groups was also a way to kind of build social identity among, you know, a small group of warriors and also a way to kind of work on tactics so people aren't ramming into each other with their horses and this kind of thing. Um, What are some what's some of the mythology of samurai and guns
0: Um, that's been around in Western culture for some time?
1: Right, so if we fast forward uh, you know to the, the, the 1500s, 1600s, uh, guns are used a lot, and then the mythology is that suddenly Japan, you know, this, the warriors give up the gun because they're not seen as honorable, right? And In fact, there's an old book called "Giving Up the Gun," mm-hmm. uh, uh, that, that's very famous. I think it's from the 1980s or 1970s. And so the mythology is that there are these guns. And they're essentially just given up in the Tokugawa period. Um, The other mythology is, you know, we often kind of the origin story is that, you know, the Europeans bring the guns to Japan in, you know, this small island in the south. But more recently, there's evidence that guns had been in Japan through Chinese merchants who brought them in to Japan Mm -hmm. through the Europeans. It's a roughly the same time period, you know, when we see more uh, Catholic missionaries going to East Asia in, in general, in the 1500s or something like that, the Jesuits and such. Um, But no, I mean guns were used throughout Japanese history. Even in the Tokugawa period, guns were given as presents from warriors to other warriors. Um, Elite warriors would practice their marksmanship. Mm -hmm. Um, So there there was no giving up of the gun as Mm. it were. What um? How does battle change?
0: Uh, the, obviously, if you're using bows and arrows, this is not a bunch of individual combats between the armies uh, going mm-hmm. on or anything mm-hmm. like that. So is this, um? You describe shields are very large and are they sound like, in fact, the the wooden shields used by uh, medieval art, uh, English archers uh, to stand behind and shoot. Um, are these um? Are battles
1: uh, essentially uh, mounted archers and standing archers? Uh, right. So if we go back to, say, the 1200s or the early 1300s, you would have small groups of people. I mean, the, the typical depiction is you have small groups of people, um, you know, more elite, mid-ranking or elite warriors on horseback shooting at each other. With you know foot soldiers kind of following along, fighting other foot soldiers or trying to dismount you know an an elite warrior from their horse, um, and there's you know there's some truth to that. I think yes, yeah, smaller scale skirmishes is what we see a lot of in earlier warrior history, but things really change in the Warring States period because the the logic of warfare has changed. It's no longer about you know, some kind of punitive mission, you know, hunting down some criminal or putting down a rebellion or something like that. Now in the Warring States period, it's about taking territory and holding on to territory Mm -hmm. and that uh, and there are more participants. So you need to have better organization. You need to involve more than just warriors or even more than just mercenaries. Now you need to involve commoners. Um, And you need to, you need to have better ideas of tactics. You have to have better notions of strategy. You have to, you know, uh, block things up a little bit more, uh, move in better, more organized uh, formations and this kind of thing. And when we, when we have that, that, that's when we have a lot of bows and arrows and also the use of, of rifles, mm-hmm. uh, handheld spears. I guess we would more appropriately call them pikes. Mm-hmm. But in that earlier history, 13th century or so, 12th, 13th century, yeah, you do have men who are standing behind shields that are just kind of placed. And and they almost have like a, a stand, as it were. So these aren't kind of handheld shields that you would – you know, clasped to your arm. These are things that were kind of picked up and moved, and then set down, and you mm-hmm. would shoot behind there. Yeah. Um, um,
0: one thing. Uh, one last thing. Before we forget to the Warring States period. <laughs> uh, beheading. Actually, taking lots uh, of yes. body parts. Um, but the beheading thing, I I was uh, I I had not realized that aspect of Japanese history. That was that yes. was that was news to me. Um, describe its importance.
1: Right. Well, so, you know, one of the ways – so, of course, warriors want to get paid. And one of the ways that you get paid is by showing, by presenting evidence of your achievements in warfare. Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is by beheading someone. And especially if you could behead an elite warrior, maybe someone who was famous or well-known in another family or someone who had better-looking armor or something like that. You would, uh, you would kill them, you would behead them, and then you would bring that back as evidence of your service. And that would be you know, written down, it would be inspected. Uh, prisoners of war would verify, okay, yes, this is the head of some officer or some guy who was famous. Um, that would be recorded and then you'd get rewarded. And of course, what you wanted to do is you wanted to behead you know, the highest ranking guy or the most famous guy that you could on the other side. Um, and those would, the heads would be dressed up, they would be, you know, fixed, um, they would be put on a piece of wood with a tag to identify them, and then they would be inspected by the general or, or someone like that uh, at the end of battle. So there was kind of like a a, a, a little ritual to it, as, as it were. Um, and that was pretty true throughout Japanese history, and one can imagine it being dangerous you know, not maybe as dangerous in these small-scale, you know, punitive missions. Mm-hmm. But if you fast forward to the Warring States period, you can see now that this is a real problem because while you're beheading someone, you're getting stabbed in the back by someone else, right? It also is uh, t- distracting you from actually winning the battle. <laughs> exactly, <laughs>
0: <laughs> just essential.
1: <laughs> Hold on a minute while I decapitate this guy. Yeah, and there exactly. are all kinds of wonderful anecdotes of people, you know, trying to. Behead just a random dead body on the battlefield, or trying to, you know, change helmets to make the person seem more important than they were. I mean, there are all kinds of ways to like game the system as you describe, one could imagine. You
0: describe generals issuing cut and toss orders, which is that's, that's and then then the and then the, and then the uh, lacquering ahead or gilding it uh, later yes. on to use or to display. That's uh, that's a nice touch as well. Um, it well, it makes scalps seem kind of, you know, um, simple, um,
1: right. And hygienic, yeah. <laughs> Um, right. It, and it, this becomes, this becomes an issue when they invade Korea because yeah. now you can't, you know, you can't take a lot of heads from Korea back to Japan. And so they tend to cut off noses and ears, uh, that serve the same purpose. Uh, at least to count how many people. Yes. Killed. Uh, yes.
0: I guess it would take up too much ship space to, uh, yes. to, to bring over the heads. Um, right. The let's talk, t- talk about um, where, where where does when does the era of the Warring States sort of begin?
1: Right. Um, well, again, this depends who sure. you ask. But in general, the Onin War of you know it starts in the late 1460s and lasts for about a decade uh, in 1467, 1477, or thereabouts. That's kind of seen as the beginning of the warring states period, um, or or at least is the, you know, is the catalyst that will lead to what becomes uh, larger scale warfare uh, after that. So this, some people would see that as the origin point. You have an
0: amazing anecdote, which I want to read. Uh, mm-hmm. The Owning War was so devastating that when a reporter asked the 17th head of the Hosokawa family, Hosokawa Morisada, Father of Prime Minister Hos- Hosokawa Mori- Morihiro about his family's legacy. Morisada replied, "Yes, our family used to have many excellent treasures, but they burned up during the war." The reporter thought that the war referred to World War II, but Morisada clarified, "Oh, by the war, I mean the Onin War." That, that's, <laughs> that's a, that says speaks to both long memory and also to the the nature of that war.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um... Yeah, that's an anecdote that I constantly use in uh, in my lectures, um, you know, to give students, sense, especially students in the United States who, you know, for historical memory in the United States. Yeah, it's kind of old, yeah. um, but, it, you know, but for a family to have in their historical memory, the 15th century is, you know, a scale that, you know, is kind of surprising to them. Mm-hmm. um and even to many Japanese i mean partly the the guy said it as as kind of like a joke a little bit um but it was absolutely it was absolutely true and and, and certainly in japan you know if you say the war uh what was your family during the war what happened to your family during the war obviously that means yeah. you know world war II and so to yeah. kind of uh throw that off is just yeah really no, it, it definitely too.
0: is a it was a, a quote Part I would imagine partly to show his aristocratic, um, the ancestry and the uh, lineage right. of that family, but also right. there's there's a it's one of those jokes that has something deadly serious at the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you you describe the Onin War as the bottom overthrowing the top. Um, mm-hmm. What do you mean by that?
1: Okay, so well the Onin the Warring States period more appropriately is when the term really came into use. Uh, The bottom over, turning the top, is actually a very old term. Uh, It it, it has its origins really in sixth century China. Hmm. And it's this idea in, you know, the five elements in yin-yang metaphysics where the five elements, you know, fire, wood, earth, um, one can always overturn the other, right? So, you know, fire can overturn wood, wood can overturn earth, but then earth can overturn this and that, right? So there's kind of a balance. Um, and so it has its origins in Chinese metaphysics, if you will. Uh, but it becomes popular in, you know, 14th century Japan to refer to politics as well, and certainly during the Warring States period, it refers to this phenomenon where you have um, subordinates, you know, in some cases nobodies, but in some cases smaller branch families, uh, warrior branch families who. Basically overthrow the head of the family, or you know, overthrow the the person who controls a certain province, and then they themselves becoming uh, the new boss in town, as it were. And so it was a phrase used to describe that overturning of hierarchy uh, during the warring states period. And there's actually the opposite, you know, I, I just re- learned this recently, you know, recently enough that it didn't make it into the book. There's one scholar in Japan who says if you're going to talk about the bottom overturning the top during the warring states period, you also have to talk about its opposite, you know, which is uh-huh. the top overturning the bottom and, you know, superiors really putting in, you know, subordinates in their place or retaking over provinces or, or this kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, And the term in Japanese, gekokujo, is also used even in modern Japan. For example, uh, if you're working in an office and a lot of the uh, junior employees uh, start to grumble about something and start to complain to HR and it affects (laughs) the bosses, they'll say, oh, you know, it's gekokujo in here you know, or something like that. Um, So it does have that kind of contemporary uses. And I've actually – when I worked in Japan, I heard uh, someone use that phrase and I thought it was really funny.
0: Yeah. Um, so it, it, it lasts as a, a sort of cultural
1: uh, trope. Yes. Trope. yes.
0: <laughs> um, can we talk about there's There's two personalities em- emerge during this period. Mm-hmm. Um, Oda Nobunaga. Um, yes. What's his importance and how does he both how does he use and uh, further reinforce warrior culture to his benefit?
1: Right, well, uh, use warrior culture to his benefit. Well, I would say he uses the political culture uh, to his benefit. I mean, he's a real example of, you know, Game of Thrones, Japanese, medieval Japan version. You know, he's good at at politicking. He's good at strategy. He's good at timing, knowing when to overthrow his superiors so he can take over the Uh, the province. And so I would say that part of warrior culture, the politics side of it Mm -hmm. is something that he uses to his advantage. Um, And also he's also kind of part of this notion that warriors are just, can be really cruel. And he, you know, he absolutely tears apart not only rival warriors inside of his own, province and outside but he was also famous for breaking the back of institutional buddhism why Uh, why does he do that i I was i didn't i hadn't
0: realized that i'm so ignorant i hadn't realized that buddhism institutional buddhism had been suppressed like that in japanese mm -hmm. history Uh, Mm -hmm. why does nobunaga consider that to be an important objective
1: Right. Well, I mean, when we think of Buddhism, we today we usually think, of "Oh, it's this nice, peaceful religion." You know, uh, some guy with a man bun in San Francisco doing meditation or something like this, right? Um, not to insult man buns. No, at uh, <laughs> That's but Cal- that's we, California Buddhism. That's, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, one of my favorite philosophers, Slavoj Žižek, calls that Western Buddhism. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but if we look at pre-modern Buddhism, it's not just religion as such, right? Um, it has economic power, it has political power, and this is the case in Japanese history. Institutional Buddhism is itself a vector for rule. They own land, they they have property, they manage people who cultivate the property. They have muscle, you know. Uh, they have warriors loyal to them they can give protection to guilds right so they are a rival so this is not all that different from the medieval
0: christian church
1: uh, yeah in some, I, I would say
0: there's some in more than I, more than absolutely. i thought
1: more analogy there than i thought possible absolutely yeah. um and in in the same way You know, noble families, if you're, you know, let's say you're a younger son in a noble family, you're not going to be the head of the family, but a possible career is you're going to be the next abbot of a major temple, and you're going to have this nice residence on this, on the outskirts of Kyoto, but not, you know, j- close enough to so you can commute to the temple, but not far enough away so that you can't enjoy the life of being in Ky- near Kyoto, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to be the next abbot because you're born into a noble family, right? So there's there's connections, right? Which I think happens in European history as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so Nobunaga sees this as a threat. He does not, he wants to break the back of that economic influence, that military influence that institutional Buddhism has. And he shows absolutely no mercy, um, you know, burning down temples, slaughtering not only monks, but even the, the lay patrons of those temples, men, women, and children. And he essentially does it, you know, Buddhism still exists after that, you know, to this day, but it is no longer uh, a ruling institution mm-hmm. as such. Um, yeah, I, I
0: said in the notes that I sent you that it was interesting to me, I, since I didn't know about this, but I was familiar with Hideyoshi's uh, suppression of Christianity. It's interesting how the one sort of seems to foreshadow the other. Um, yeah, I've them I a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: have you? Yeah, you know, when I was looking at your questions, um, you know, Hideyoshi's suppression of Christianity, similar to Buddhism, uh, the, the only, I mean, the difference, um, of course, is one of degree and yeah. one of enforcement, because Hideyoshi bans Christianity, but doesn't actually enforce it. Huh. And in fact, there, you know, for four years after the ban, there are still churches in Nagasaki, there's still Jesuits hanging around, and yeah. they're... The Jesuits themselves think, hey, because our churches were never torn down, maybe he'll reverse the ban because he's not really enforcing it, you know, uh-huh. um, unlike Nobunaga, who, you know, enforced, you know, he didn't have a ban as such, but he enforced his crackdown. Yeah, uh,
0: but it, it there is a there are different reasons for it, but certainly they're very uncomfortable about having a, any institutional power outside of mm-hmm. of their rule.
1: That's Absolutely for certain.
0: Um so uh, Hideyoshi, um, you describe him. He has like an Anakin Skywalker conception.
1: Yeah. You know, you know I, I thought about that a lot. That's yeah. Yeah. We, he, we can talk about that if you want. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
0: go ahead. Don't talk about it. He, he, he's conceived by a ray of sunlight into his mother's <laughs> womb, which is uh, yes. that. Now, that's a creation myth to tell about yourself. That's pretty. Uh-oh. That's pretty amazing. <laughs>
1: yeah um, yeah, so I, I would say Hideyoshi would love to be compared to Anakin Skywalker yeah. in that way, you know yeah. that kind of humble background, but there's something inside of you that destines you for greatness, right <laughs> Yeah um, so in that way he, he would have liked that analogy. Um, but in actuality, Hideyoshi was, you know, we're not really sure about his background. I think the consensus is that he was probably born into some very, very low ranking warrior family of some sort and raised mostly by his mother. Right. Um, so there, there's one view that he was a peasant, you know, just a low down nobody. But I think that that is probably not true that he's just a little bit higher than that or, or, you know, uh, and
0: so this is uh this is a moment now where um these warriors can now become nobles. I mean, I guess it's been happening before, but this is this is very different from where we began the story mm-hmm. is is that right or i mean this um, this is part of this is part of the bottom overthrowing the top this is this is the someone from the very low uh origins being able to eventually rise to the top and impose their will
1: right I would say he becomes an elite he doesn't become a noble okay right, yeah. um, and in fact, one of the things is that it, it's quite clear that his bloodline or his lineage he's not really I mean you know, they kind of i mean this happens with other warriors, people try to forge things or try to find some connection, but he's he is not uh of any kind of major lineage, and no one really pretends as such, so he never he never becomes shogun. Uh, No one in Japanese history really tries to overthrow the emperor, but he does kind of accrue noble titles, I would Mm -hmm. say, noble ranks. That's that's what warriors can do. They can get some kind of rank in the nobility, in the noble hierarchy, even though that rank might have no actual function. So
0: there is – this is interesting because we have a distinction in terms. In Japan, no one can be ennobled. You must right. you must be able to prove your lineage going back to, I don't know, uh, the beginning of
1: when the island rose from the sea or, or something like that. <laughs> right, you know, to some kind of emperor or a noble family like the Fujiwara or I something see. like that. Um, yes, n- to my knowledge, yes, no one would be ennobled in that sense. Okay. Um, you could become... A warrior and you could become, I mean, especially before the Tokugawa period, right, Mm -hmm. because things are so kind of loosey-goosey, but even in the Tokugawa period where things are relatively strictly defined, you know, Mm -hmm. like either you choose, you know, at the end of the Warring states period, people essentially, a lot of them have a choice, you know, either you go back to your lands and be a farmer, in which case you can no longer at all be a warrior in any way, shape, or form. Or you can stick with being a warrior, you know, and then relocate to a castle town. Um, And so in the 17th century, things become a little bit more strict. But even there, there are chances that you could, you know, buy your way into warrior status. Hmm. But in terms of the nobility in Kyoto, um, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but no, I've never heard of anyone becoming a noble family.
0: Um, We're, we, um, we're, Getting way over time, but um, I, right. I should probably move uh, move ahead a little bit more briskly. But I, is it in the Tokugawa period that um, things become less loosey goosey? You, mm-hmm. You've just you've just said also people could actually buy their way into warrior status. So all of a sudden that right. that's actually it's something desirable. It's there's actually a status mm-hmm. to buy into. It's less loosey goosey. Right. There's uh, right. there are increasingly there are codes. Uh, there are. There's swordsmanship, there are all these things. This is the period where these were. This is this the period where where the where this samurai image is become starting to crystallize finally.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, kind of one of the arguments in the book. I don't know if it's explicit or not, or maybe it is. Uh, but you know. When we think of warriors you know, in popular culture, whether it's the TV show Shogun, if you go that far back, or if you're a younger person and you're looking at manga or anime or something like that, most of what we see when we think of warriors is from the Tokugawa period. Yeah. Um, and this is a time when, yes, I mean, one of the interesting things that happens and I think I say this in the book is that it's the first time that all sectors of society now participate in the production of warrior image in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the literacy rates go up, so you have a lot more commoners who are literate, um, and you have a lot more warriors who are literate. I mean, a lot m- most warriors, you know, before the seventeenth century were illiterate. You know, they couldn't read or write unless they were elite enough to be educated. Mm-hmm. And this changes in the Tilgao period. So now you have low-ranking warriors who are becoming poets. You have village headmen who might be writing essays. Right. So the production of knowledge, textual knowledge, is no longer monopolized by the nobility or the clergy or the elite warriors. Now it's open to everyone. And one of the effects of that is everyone's writing about warriors, whether it's to celebrate them or make fun of them, Uh, to imitate them or parody them you know you just have more production of the warrior as an image of something right the um
0: when does this idea of bushido um when does it when does it emerge uh you one theory is that it doesn't emerge like 1900 we should probably mention that but or does it is it earlier? I mean, where, where, where does all this, where does flower arranging and all the rest, of, where does, and tea <laughs> syrup, where does this all come from? Where does it start getting put together?
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, we'll we'll go with the bushido one first, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's an excellent uh, book published by a friend of mine, Oleg Benesh, that really gets. I mean, the entire book is about you know the origins of the term bushido in modern Japan, and it's mostly. I mean, the kind of default answer that you'll get anymore is bushido is a term. That gets its currency in kind of the late 19th century. Uh, it's it's an invented tradition, right? To use the the, the cliche, but still a useful term, um, and it's supposedly this code of behavior for warriors, right? Uh, you know, kind of like the the Japanese version of of knighthood or chivalry or something like that. Um, the term Bushido itself actually does exist in the Tokugawa period, but it doesn't mean at all those things. Bushido simply means you know the 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 livelihood of a warrior, you know, like what are what are some of the things? You know, it's just a general term to, you know, here are the obligations. You you have obligations as a warrior. You are different from a commoner. You know that kind of meaning. So it, it's not at all a kind of codified philosophy or anything like that. Now, I mean, there are other terms like shido, um, which in the Tokugawa period kind of refer to here are some generally accepted. Uh, values that warriors should follow, right, and that has its origins even before the Tokugawa period, right? Mm-hmm. You know that you should uh, be loyal to your lord. You, you know, should not associate with bad people. You shouldn't be gambling and mm-hmm. stuff like that, right? And you talk about some of these these sort of
0: letters to sons or treatises yes. to sons, which sort of discuss this. Ver-
1: Right, absolutely. You know how to be a good manager and that kind of thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it, it's never really codified. You know, it's not institutionalized as such. Um, so, bushido is, on one hand, it is a modern invention, absolutely. But in the Tokugawa period, there are kind of notions of how a warrior should behave. Um, but it's not the bushido that we see in popular culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what about this other stuff the 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 tea ceremony the flower arranging tea ceremony flower I arranging
0: are people being trained in this uh do they have to go away to study with someone else to do all these things I mean how how does this it, are it, first of all uh, do people actually do these things uh do these warriors are they actually trained in these things uh if so why and how
1: right okay so the, what we would think of as tradition <laughs> traditional japanese culture right flower arranging ikebana and tea ceremony um they really Get their start, not in the Tokawa period, but in the Warring States period, mm-hmm. oddly enough. I mean, this is a time when the, the warrior regime is based in Kyoto, right? Not far away in Kamakura, but in Kyoto. And so you have a lot of warriors there, but there's also, I mean, that's where the nobility live, right? And so warriors are trying to copy, they're trying to participate in noble culture, Um, which is monopolized by the nobility nobility and also the clergy. So even someone like Nobunaga and Hideyoshi they are studying things like kemati, which is usually referred to as kickball, but it's more like hacky sack with a with a ball <laughs> with with nothing in it, essentially like a wicker ball. Um, so they practice that and they'll find like, you know, a kemati teacher who will teach them how to not simply be good at the game, but how to do the rituals and the ceremony right. You know, this is something that nobles monopolized for the most part or tea ceremony, you know, how to be a good tea ceremony host or something like that. So warriors are participating in this. Um uh, because it's a way to interact with their social betters, sure. namely the nobility mm-hmm. um it's also a way to i mean it's part of the life of a warrior outside of warfare, and mm-hmm. most of the life of a warrior is outside of fa- warfare, not in it sure. uh, so really, it's you know I would say fifteenth century sixteenth century is when we see warriors participating in this, especially elite warriors. And then once we get into the Togawa period, yes, you'll see more um, you know, rank and file warriors, mid or low ranking warriors who might – who actually have a lot of free time. Um, and especially if they're living in Edo, they might spend their time learning musical instruments, doing a cabana tea ceremony or something like that. I mean, it's not something that everybody is doing, right? I don't want people to think that all warriors are doing tea ceremony or flower arranging or something like that. But it's one pastime that would be deemed appropriate for a warrior rather than gambling or, you know, Hooking up with prostitutes or something like right. that. Right. Uh, and this, because they, it's,
0: they're warriors in a time of peace. Um, and yeah. there's, yeah. what else are they going to do? Um, right. I mean, other than go we, save a village of peasants. Cause uh, I don't know, that doesn't, that didn't happen either, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Um, but let's talk about Kurosawa, um, mm-hmm. I and and the 20th century because it's um, so much of the the sort of image of the samurai. Just to, as mm-hmm. we're tying this up, seems to come through um, nationalist propaganda of the 20s and 30s, which is then strangely reinforced by popular culture of the 50s and 60s. You <laughs> know, uh, in, in a really weird kind of way. I, do you is that your opinion? I mean, am I getting you right on that or? Is that just my observation from reading you? Uh, if
1: I said it, then I think it's right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, even it. though I turned in that manuscript uh, months ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> I but, I could change my mind, um, but uh, yes. I, I mean, the the kind of popular culture of warriors, uh, you, you know, even really in the in the 1890s or early 20th century was already being set up. But I think it intensifies in the 20s and 30s and 40s when the warriors and you know the famous musashi and people like that you know this kind of death before dishonor um that kind of thing yes does come into play in movies and such in the 20s 30s and and 40s um but but it has to be populist mm -hmm. it's uh, from the nationalist perspective
0: uh, in the 30s uh everyone all soldiers have to be warriors which was sure as heck not the position in 1200 1300 1500 right because you all (laughs) you all i mean they're mass producing samurai swords for all the officers in the imperial japanese army
1: right um, right. so
0: that they can all be they're not all samurai uh, but so (laughs) that we have this strange sort of populist warrior culture uh, which is very distinctive and different than it's very different than the original uh,
1: culture. Right, than, than the reality, as yeah, it were, right. yes. And those films were popular. And, and even for us, you know, we could watch a samurai film from the 20s or 30s, and it's exciting, and, you know, there's love interest, and there's, you know, big battle scenes and things like that. There are also, to a certain extent, notions of... The importance of the collective that we're all in this together, which Mm -hmm. is an appeal that's not simply for fascists, but even people for laborers, um, Mm -hmm. people on the left, you know, working together as a collective is something that has kind of a universal appeal. Um, But there was it, it seems to me not that I'm a film expert, but it seems to me that there's also this push that, you know, we're you know, that that death can be beautiful that death uh, can be desirable in some instances, that you will be celebrated when you die on behalf of, of some greater ideal. Um, that certainly plays into uh, the propaganda of, of the wartime. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether people are not bought into it is a whole other issue, of course, but it was certainly something that we see on screen. And,
0: and, and then once the American occupation is over and, and samurai films are allowed to be made again, mm-hmm. Kurosawa, Takes them and he combines them with a western, to, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and makes something right. kind of new again. Um, how does that distort to the image? I mean, it does.
1: It, it's probably the, that's probably the final distortion, I guess, of the, of the samurai image. Right. Well, you know, that's that's an interesting question. In my first book, like in, in the fourth chapter of my first book, I actually do get into samurai film in the post-war period and, and how they're censored and, and what you can and can't do in a samurai film. Yeah. But I would say once we get into Kurosawa, I mean, there's some, what I like about Kurosawa, and here I'm thinking specifically of the seven samurai, uh-huh. is it does a pretty good job of depicting... The kind of the tough life that warriors have, yeah, uh, it's not all glamour, and some of them are obviously quite poor. Uh, and it really ends you know on, on this theme of, you know I think the the final scene the elder warrior says. You know, our time is over, and now it's their time, meaning the time of the villagers and the commoners. And that is a film that takes place at the end of the Warring States period, where there is this, you know, what happens in the Tokugawa period is it's really, you know, Edo, which is now called Tokyo Edo urbanites who are into kabuki and making money and they're the kind of center of attention, not warriors if you will, right? Mm-hmm. So there are things in Kurosawa that I actually like um, and in turn, if we were to talk about distortions, it's less distorting than films of the 20s and 30s, I guess yeah. I mean, in some way. I, I guess then it, to be fair, it's, it's when we
0: distort it and think, oh, they were always like that um, yes.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. When we, yeah.
0: we remove sort of historical change from the the film, or from right. which we often do, that's just the way that right. we often look at the past. Um. So the book is Samurai: A Concise History, and it is published by Oxford University Press in July 2019. Uh, Michael, anything? Uh, where can we find out more about your work? Um,
1: Right. I guess, uh, you know, simply uh, Google me as it were. I do. I do have a website uh, that has links to other podcasts, uh, media appearances. I'll, I'll be on uh, Netflix uh, a year from now. I also did a, wait, wait, a you're short.
0: Gonna, you're going to be on Netflix a year from now.
1: What? Yeah. Yeah. I did an interview not too long ago in New York City. Uh, there there's a production company making a five I think it's a five-episode series just on the Warring States period, and they really did a great job of interviewing all the who's who, not only people in the United States and Europe, but a lot of uh, Japanese experts in Japan, descendants of some of these elite warrior families. And I was told that'll probably be coming out in a year, so maybe March of 2020 would be a good bet to see that on Netflix. Um but yes, I, I have a link to the Marquette University website that'll take you to links to other media that I've that I've been in and and where I will post things that I will be in shortly. Okay. Michael Wirtz, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks. It was my pleasure.